This morning, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce a guest speaker who is probably not a guest to many of us. Um, Morgan was uh, previously a pastor of students and discipleship here at City Life for a few years before launching out in 2021 with John Gordon to plant Redeemer Church here in Wichita. And together they co-pastor that church here in town. Um, Morgan is uh, not only a a brother in Christ of mine, but he's a good friend too. And uh, a man of integrity, a man who loves God and loves his word and loves the people of God well. Um, Probably his greatest achievement in life is marrying Miss Kelsey over here, who's joining today. Amen. He's a husband to Kelsey and a father to three beautiful children, Mariah, Kaya, and Morgan Jr. So would you join me in giving Pastor Morgan Burns a warm City Life welcome. Good morning. morning. Hey, y'all did that pretty good. Hey, usually I'm like, y'all can talk back to me. All right, so I'm going to tell you the same thing I tell my church family Redeemer. Y'all can talk. It doesn't have to be a monologue. It can be a dialogue. Y'all can talk back to me. All right? Okay. Uh, I want to rush to say how thankful I am uh, for your pastor, Pastor Andy. Uh, I'm thankful for his faithful leadership, his boldness to preach the word. Uh, It's been a gift to have him in the city of Wichita. And so would y'all give your pastor a hand? Give him a hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also want to say I'm grateful for the staff here, the elders here, and you all as a church body. Um, The last few days I've just been reflecting over the significance of this church in my life. Uh, My wife's family, Kelsey, uh, her family attended First Baptist for many years and played a significant role in the ministry to Haiti. My wife was baptized here a couple of decades ago by Pastor Dan Hahn. Uh, It was here where I received the calling to pastoral ministry and cut my teeth for six or seven years. Uh, I was married in this sanctuary. My my two oldest kids were dedicated here. Uh, And to this day, some of my best friends were made here at City Life Church. And so uh, I'm very grateful for this church. And it was also here where, where City Life sent me and Pastor John Gordon to plant a gospel-centered multi-ethnic church called Redeemer, um, and it's going very well. And so I just want to say, uh, whether you know it or not, you have been a formational uh, piece in my journey with the Lord. All right, and so it, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to bring the word uh, this morning. And so this morning, we're going to continue in a series called Devoted Community. And this morning, I've been tasked with the topic of a community that is devoted to prayer community devoted to prayer. And so uh, let's practice that real quick and pray before I dive in. Father, we praise you. We honor you. Holy Spirit, engage us in this space. Would you prepare the soil of our hearts so the seed of your word to find good soil and produce fruit? Or that everything from my lips would be for your glory and for the edification of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. At the moment of conception, children are profoundly dependent. And their dependence is not just seen after they exit the womb, no, but again, they're dependent at the moment of conception. They're so dependent that God has created something called the umbilical cord. An umbilical cord is something that keeps the baby tethered and connected to its mama. And not only does it keep it connected, but it transfers from the mama to the baby the essential life-giving nutrients that it needs to grow into health. 
Now, the umbilical cord, y'all, it's, it's not an amenity. The umbilical cord is not a luxury. It's not something that's just nice to have. No, the umbilical cord is essential, significant even, an absolute necessity. For as goes the umbilical cord, so goes the child. It's a matter of life and death. And friends, what is true in the natural is likewise true in the spiritual. For those of us who have been saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Scripture says we have been adopted into the family of God. We are God's children, and like children in the natural realm, we are profoundly dependent. Therefore, God has designed an umbilical cord called prayer. And prayer is the umbilical cord that keeps us tethered to our Father. Prayer is not just something we do when we feel like it. It's not an extra add-on in life. It's not something that we, uh, something that's just nice to have or something we do in case of an emergency. No, no, no. Prayer is essential to life with God. A prayerless life is a life that says, I can do life independent of God. I love what the 19th century author Ian Bounds has to say about prayer. He says, prayer is the expression of the soul's dependence on God. And so we're called to be a dependent people, a a community, a people who admit their poverty in spirit, their neediness before God. Prayer at its core is the picture, better yet, the posture of my three-year-old toddler who, when she gets fatigued and tired, stretches her arms up to her mommy and daddy and says, pick me up, I need you. Prayer is acknowledging that it doesn't matter how many letters are behind your name, how much money is in your bank account, what you have going on for you in your life. Prayer is is admitting that we can't do this life without God. And so when Dr. Luke paints the picture of this community that uh, that was devoted to prayer, y'all, what is he saying? Is he saying that we should quit our jobs, throw our phones away, leave our families and move into the wilderness or, or the desert and create a monastery to pray all day? If you read through the book of Acts, you see a group of men, of women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, and an eclectic community moving through life with a posture of joyful prayer. A whole life oriented towards God, an attentiveness, an awareness of a life being connected to. Jesus used the language of John 15 of abiding. Paul talks about walking in step with the Spirit. If you read through the book of Acts, you see a people committed to prayer, a people who join regularly to pray, formal and informal. They prayed at the temple and in houses. They prayed for discernment and making decisions. They prayed for boldness to preach the word. Stephen prayed while he was being stoned. Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans, a.k.a. the ethnic others. Saul of Tarsus prayed after his conversion. Cornelius prayed before his conversion. Peter prayed on the rooftop and before he raised this dead girl back to life. Y'all, we see a picture of a multi-ethnic community in Antioch in Acts 13 where they are fasting and praying together. Y'all, when Peter was in prison, the church gathered at John Mark's house, and the text says they earnestly prayed for hours. Fam, they prayed. It was, it was clearly a staple of this community. And so when we think about prayer, I, friends, I think we tend to view it as something functional or, 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 or a technique to be mastered instead of a relationship to step into. 
We want to do it right, say the right thing for the right amount of time. A few years ago, someone looked at me with all my desire and accomplishment and, and achievement to, uh, to work for God and said, God is not some cosmic pimp who wants us just to get stuff done for him. I'm going to read it again because some of y'all are like, did he just say pimp in church? <laughs> I'm going to read it again. God is not some cosmic pimp who wants, to just get, wants us to get stuff done for him. In other words, he wants to be in relationship with us, to spend time with us, wants us to enjoy being in his presence. He cares just as much, if not more, about what he can do in you than through you. Being devoted to prayer and praying continually, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, is more about moving through life in relationship with God as our Father than it is about just simply checking a box. So again, what does this look like? I want to look at a story that I think is compelling for us as Christ follows today in our cultural moment. Uh, Robert Smith Jr., professor at Beeson Divinity School, says, for every New Testament point, there's an Old Testament picture or, or illustration. And so I want to turn to the ancient memoir of Daniel. The ancient memoir of Daniel. And Daniel is going to help us put some shoe leather on this idea of being devoted to prayer. Show us what it looks like fleshed out in a specific time and in context embodied. So if you come to the, to the book of Daniel, if you feel comfortable, close your eyes with me. If you feel comfortable, close your eyes. And imagine with me for a few seconds. You are at home with your family or friends or maybe you're by yourself. You're sharing a meal, having a conversation, maybe getting ready for bed, doing your nightly routine, and suddenly you hear loud screams and noises. It sounds chaotic. A, a powerful empire from far away, a faraway land has shown up and is invading your city, invading your home, your space. They take you and your families captive, and, and not just you, but all of your leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, financial leaders. They take your things. You're terrified. You're scared. You don't even have time to process the emotions pulsing through your body. They chain you up. And you embark on this long journey across the desert where they, where they relocate you to a refugee camp or a, a new foreign city. And now you have to exist in this new place with a new culture, a new language, new food, new style of clothing, new gods and temples, new religious practices, a new ruler. You have no clue how things work here. You're a minority. And as far as you can tell, this isn't going to be, or th this is how it's going to be for the foreseeable future. You can open your eyes. Friends, this is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and the Babylonian empire, conquering Judah and then forcefully deporting his Israelites back to Babylon. And so friends, the Babylon is essentially the picture of human history how humanity, a nation, and its rulers are prone and tempted to deify and put on a pedestal their culture, their language, their politics, as if it is God. How a nation can exalt its power and national security and economy, forcing people to pledge their allegiance to it. The book of Daniel is a story about Daniel and a couple of his friends, an up-close example of the struggle of how to maintain faithfulness and hope 
as minorities in a foreign land, of how to exist in a culture where everything seems to be working against you, against your faith, against your value system. And it seems like everywhere you turn, you're being pressured to compromise and abandon your faith. Y'all, this was Daniel's struggle. And not just Daniel, but this was the struggle of the early Jesus movement and continued on for the, for the first couple of centuries in the Roman Empire. And friends, I believe is our struggle today. Fam, if you don't think it's hard to follow Jesus today, then you might not be following him. Daniel helps us with this. After, after Israel was captured and then deported, in the process, the king recruited four men, impressive men, intelligent men, capable men, physically appealing. He recruited them for his benefit and service. They went through three years of education and training where they received new Babylonian names, learned a new language, learned the customs and the culture. And get this, they got government jobs. What I love about the example of Daniel and Babylon is his relationship to the culture. There are three things you never see Daniel do. You never see or get the sense that he's going to start a war with the culture. He doesn't lead a revolt in this bad boy. He's not going to storm the capital in a more contextual way. He's not leaving long Facebook posts about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's also not going to withdraw to the desert. He's not, he's not withdrawing or hiding, distancing himself from the culture. You don't see it. Lastly, you don't see him give in to the culture. You don't see him compromise. He doesn't conform or, or fully assimilate. Daniel over and over again is shown serving and working for the government, serving the king, engaging in the culture, so much so that people in power look on him with favor and keep trying to promote this guy. Daniel is a picture of what Tim Keller calls a faithful presence in our culture. However, there are moments throughout his journey in Babylon where his faithfulness to Yahweh is called into question. And what Daniel does is put on display that there are times when one has to resist the empire in order to be faithful to God. So this is what we find in our text this morning. Daniel is still in the city of Babylon, still in the same location but under new management. In Daniel chapter 6, a new empire, a new ruler has taken over. King Darius and the Persians have replaced Babylon as the dominant empire. And, and, and the chapter begins, chapter 6, with Darius appointing 120 leaders, governors, to give leadership and direction throughout the kingdom with three higher officials giving oversight to those 120. And one of those three was Daniel. One of those three was Daniel. And then... We have some typical office drama popping up at work, y'all. All right? Daniel was so impressive as a person and in his work and had gained so much favor with those in power that, king, that the king had it in his plans to eventually set Daniel over the whole kingdom, to run this whole kingdom. All right? Some of his co-workers were jealous and honestly upset that this foreigner was about to excel to the top of the governmental food chain. And so these leaders, they, they, they grew so envious and bitter that they decided to come up with a plan to bring this man down. They wanted to sabotage his career, catch him in a scandal, catch him in trouble, catch him slipping. 
only one problem. Y'all, Daniel was spotless. Above reproach. His character was impressive to say the least. He had no skeletons in the closet. They looked all the way back on this dude's social media feed. The brother was clean. <laughs> Couldn't dig anything up on him, nothing. And so they get to the end of their rope and they decide that Daniel is so committed to his God, so faithful and loyal to Yahweh that if we manipulate and manufacture a situation, we have to pick between God and the empire. We all know what he's going to do. We all know what he's going to do. They knew that Daniel's faith was that central to his life. Y'all, let's just stop and just say, wow. Wow. And, and I want to be careful because I, I don't think Scripture is implying that Daniel was without sin. But I do think it's implying, communicating that Daniel was a faithful dude. And y'all think about the context. He was a minority whose land was invaded. And people were forcefully deported to a new land. And you can't find anything on him. No outbursts. No angry tweets. He doesn't try to get even. There's nothing. There's nothing. Y'all look at, look at Daniel chapter 6. Verse 6 and 7. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators uh, uh, prefects, satraps, and advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Y'all, let's be real. These dudes were lying. This claim that all of the governmental leaders unanimously agreed and approved this statement was not true. They were lying. Let's just start with Daniel, the king's favorite. He had no clue what was going on. This request definitely would have played to the king's ego. Or, or if he had any insecurity about his popularity and power, this would have been music to his ears. That he would be the sole deity of the, of the kingdom for the next 30 days. That if anyone was to pray, they were only to pray to one person. And if they broke this law... Y'all, it was to the lion's den. Y'all, this is the temptation of human history, of humanity. This is the root of all sin. We want to be God. We want the glory. Look at verse 8. Now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered, so it cannot be changed, so you cannot go back on it in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. We now shift scenes from the court of law to the home of Daniel and his simple yet profound response. Look at verse 10, y'all. This is rich. This is rich. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. David Kinnaman, the author of multiple books and the president of the Barnard Group, says this about Babylon in his book, Faith for Exiles. He says, the, Bab the Babylon of the Bible is characterized as a culture set against the purposes of God, a human society that glories in pride, power, prestige, and pleasure. Babylon makes appearances throughout the Bible, most notably and literally in the story of Daniel. But Babylon is there in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. 
from the Tower of Babel, the first quote-unquote city of man, in the book of Genesis to the final act of God's justice and restoration and revelation. Babylon is both a place and an archetype of collective human pursuits set in opposition to God. Friends, what Kinnaman is, is getting at is, yes, Babylon was a literal place, but it's also the spirit, this, this way of life in the culture that is in direct opposition to the way and purposes of God. And he makes the case that the spirit of Babylon exists today, seeking to shape and assimilate and indoctrinate us in the ways of the world. And friends, we have been called to live as a life as faithful exiles, a faithful kind of resistance to remain faithful to our true home and our true king. And Daniel here gives us an example of how a minority and exile remain faithful in a pluralistic, fast-paced, diverse, politically powerful, complex, and idolatrous space. Sound familiar? And Daniel shows a level of spiritual grit, I like to call it, resilience. Let's read verse, verse 10 again and let's break it down. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Notice, Daniel doesn't trip. That's my slang for he, he, he wasn't freaking out. Daniel did not trip. He sold show enough moxie. I'm throwing a lot at you right now. He doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't show any sign of worry or, or doubt or even frustration. He doesn't go to the king to complain. He doesn't use his, his favor to his own benefit. He, he doesn't even go to his inner circle of friends to vent. He doesn't plan a prayer march. The text says he simply went home to pray because in his mind, friends, that was the safest thing to do at the moment. Because it may have appeared that King Darius had all the power, but Daniel did not give in to the illusion. He knew who held the world in his hands. He knew whose throne would, would, would rule and reign for generations to come. He knew that the reign of King Darius was temporary and worldly, but that his God would reign forevermore and reign over the cosmos. He went home to pray. And I love the information it gives us about Daniel's prayer prayer life, strictly in verse 10, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem to pray. Now, the text doesn't tell us why, but if I were to use my sanctified imagination, he, he could have been facing Jerusalem as a way of reminding himself that his citizenship, his loyalty is laid elsewhere, that this was not his home, that he was a stranger from a foreign land. Jerusalem was a reminder of, of God, of Yahweh and his promises, a reminder of the faithfulness of God, the presence of God amongst his people, a, a reminder of what God had done in Israel's history. Jerusalem reminded Daniel of who God was and who Daniel was in the context of his people. Maybe he was rehearsing and, and meditating on key scriptures that drove him to pray. Maybe he was praying towards Jerusalem, remembering the, that, that, that Jerusalem is the place of sacrifice. Maybe, friends, he was longing and hoping for the future where God would deliver his people and make good on his promises. I like to think this intentional posture would have stirred Daniel to pray, to fervent prayer, 
Friends, what in your life, like Daniel, reminds us and encourages us to faithful and fervent prayer? What key scriptures, what, what answered prayers can you look back on? What events in your life are there special places that you go to that just remind you of the faithfulness and the goodness of God? And it says three times a day he got down on his knees to pray just as he had done before. Oh, I love this. This shows that Daniel was living a life of prayer, that he was devoted to prayer, continually praying, cultivating a life of prayer. He was, in a, he was a habitual prayer. There was regularity to his prayer life. He was disciplined. It seemed that he had some structure to his prayer life because the reality is, friends, if you were just to pray when we feel like it, we would never pray. We would never pray. My view, I think that spontaneous prayer flows out of regular, disciplined, habitual prayer. Daniel was not getting to prayer whenever he got to it or whenever his schedule freed up. You get the sense that this was his priority in his schedule. And, and I just want to speak to those who think you are too busy to pray to God. Friends, Daniel was essentially overseeing a kingdom. An empire. This shows that you make time for what you truly treasure and value. And the text says, just as he had done before. This indicates that he wasn't just praying in response to the decree. All of a sudden developing this elaborate prayer life in order to stick it to the man. No, no, no. You, get, you just get the sense that it is just business as usual. This was his life behind closed doors. He did not do more praying or any less praying in response to this decree. This was just his life. Therefore, his prayer life did not hinge upon any specific situation. And there's this interesting tension of he's not putting his prayer on public display to be seen necessarily, but he's also not hiding it either. The windows were open. And it says three times a day he did this. Three times a day he prayed. And, and there's no evidence that, uh, that, a, that a prayer practice like this was mandated, except maybe in Psalm 55, which I'm going to read just briefly. Verse 17, it says, Evening, which by the way is when G Jews begin their day. Evening, morning and noon, I cry out in distress. And he hears my voice, evening, morning, and noon, his life. He was organizing his whole life and day to be in communion with God. This, this was his way of anchoring himself in God through the, through the spiritual practice of prayer in a culture that was seeking to colonize him in its ways. Friends, it says Daniel got down on his knees to pray. This was a practice, if you read through the book of Acts, you see time and time again, Stephen fell on his knees to pray as he was being killed. Peter fell down on his knees in Acts 19, praying for a dead woman to get up. Paul, in the leadership in Ephesus, kneeled to their knees to pray together before they parted ways, seeing each other for the last time in Acts 20. Dr. Luke indicates that he kneeled to pray with others before he journeyed back to Jerusalem in Acts 21. And then lastly, King Jesus kneeled to pray in Luke chapter 22. Kneeling, friends, is the posture of a beggar. 
This was a posture of humility, a posture of lowering oneself, showing one's neediness, which communicated something about how you view yourself, but also shows something of how we view God. It shows honor and and reverence, having a sense of awe towards God, incorporating our bodies into worship, which we all need to learn. How do you incorporate your bodies in worship? So that when Zach is up here singing and, and playing, man, your bodies are integrated. Some of y'all are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> integrating our bodies in worship. It says he got down on his knees to pray. And his praying included supplication and thanksgiving. His years of disciplined prayer meant that his spiritual focus in the midst of crisis was not destroyed or swayed. Y'all, I'm just thinking of all the ways I would have responded in this situation and going to pray alone uh, in my house with with a grateful heart was not one of them. It involves a lot of cookies and spiraling by myself. No sleep. It didn't look like this. In verse 11, we see that Daniel is praying and he's asking God for help. Y'all, we don't know exactly what Daniel prayed for, but maybe he, he prayed on behalf of Babylon. Maybe he prayed for King Darius and the governmental leaders. Maybe, just maybe he prayed for help and, and endurance for himself and the people of Israel to remain faithful in their state of exile. Maybe he was thanking God for his provision and protection up to this point, praying that he would remain faithful and hopeful in light of the coming kingdom that was to come. This was Daniel's response. And again, let's think of this response within the context of the story. Y'all, many of us have heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den many, many times. Many as a children's story or, you know, through the veggie tales, however you've heard of it. Many of us don't know why he ended up there in the first place. Y'all, it was because of prayer. Prayer. Y'all, think about this. The decree meant for Daniel that he only had to stop praying to God for 30 days. That's it, 30 days. And if you didn't, it meant death. It meant facing the lions. Yo, let's be real. I'm going to put my sin out there. I could very, very quickly rationalize not praying for 30 days. Y'all, to protect my name, my reputation, my life, my family. Y'all, Daniel had a lot to lose. He was in a high place of power. Ah, but Daniel knows who put put him there. He was seeing things clearly. Friends, let me make Daniel's dilemma as clear as I can for us this morning. If you pray to God, you die. If you pray to God, you die. And Daniel's response is so quick and clear as to communicate that Daniel saw prayer as so essential and important in his life that he was willing to die to commune just for a couple of hours with God. It was non-negotiable for him. Being on the empire's good side or being faithful to God in prayer, it was a no-brainer. No-brainer. Y'all, this should preach to us because there are a number of things that we wouldn't give up for 30 days for prayer much less our lives. Daniel would rather be eaten by lions than to stop praying. Friends, this shows us how important prayer is. For Daniel, prayer was how he stayed tethered to his father in Babylon. 
Prayer was a way to listen to God over the cultural narratives. Prayer was a way of quieting all the noise in the culture to remember who God is and also a way of remembering who Daniel was. Prayer was his way of being a faithful and hopeful exile in a culture that seemed hopeless and chaotic. Prayer was a way to call on God to be faithful through his promises. Daniel's prayer life communicated that Daniel was a humble dude and that he didn't let his rank and his position get to his head. And friends, you may not know what it's like to be an ethnic minority in a city or context, but we all know what it's like to be cognitive minorities. Because the way of Jesus today is not popular. If anything, it's seen as offensive. We live in a post-Christian context. So we can resonate with, with Daniel's experience here. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, you must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. He says, you must arrange your days, your whole life around life with God, contentment with God, joy with God. This is what Daniel was doing. This is the kind of life he was living, friends. I want to go home on this illustration. In in his book, A Hidden Wholeness, Parker Palmer talks about how farmers in the Midwest would prepare for a blizzard uh, by tying a rope from the back door of their house to the barn as a guide to ensure that they would return safely. And he goes on to say that these blizzards that came were highly dangerous, intense, that, that wind was blowing full force, and that people got lost all the time. It was said that a farmer could not see their hand if it was right in front of them. Many froze to death. Disoriented by their inability to see, they would wander in circles, get lost simply in their backyard. Friends, the spirit of Babylon is a type of blizzard that we can get completely lost in. Lost in the pace of life, lost in the distraction, lost in our jobs, lost in the cultural narratives, lost. But it's the rope of prayer, friends, if we hold firmly to it, that will keep us grounded in God. This is what Daniel did. He persisted in prayer. The text says the other leaders went to find Daniel, and it was just as they suspected. He was praying. Friends, Daniel was a man without blame, a man faithful to God, unjustly plotted against and framed by the political leaders of his day, condemned to death thrown into a a, a den meant to be his tomb. And they, the text says, they rolled a stone over the opening. It says the king even sealed it with his own ring so that Daniel's situation could not be changed. Likewise, years later, they did the same to Jesus. They framed him, plotted against him, set him up. Jesus, like Daniel, was arrested while he was praying in a private location. Both Daniel and Jesus were sentenced to be executed, the difference being... Daniel was delivered without a scratch, and Jesus died. But three days later, Jesus died, but three days later, come on now, hey, come on now. Three days later, he rose from the grave showing that he's more powerful than any king, any ruler. He rose from the grave showing that death could not touch him. It couldn't keep him down. He emerged from the tomb. This all-powerful Jesus, this same Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth, this Jesus saw it as essential to his life and ministry to pray regularly. 
in between his teachings and healings. He, he prayed before big decisions. He prayed on the cross in pain. Friends, he prayed. Jesus, he, we see him time and time again communing with his father. Not only did he model it, but because that Jesus went to the cross, we can relate to God in an intimate way. Paul says we, we now together have access to him. We can rush in with confidence to communicate with our father because of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the picture of being a devoted prayerer. And my encouragement to you all this morning is not to get so caught up in the sexiness of ministry, in the glamour of ministry that you forget to pray, but instead following the example of, of Daniel and, and the early church and ultimately of Jesus, that you would reorient your communal life around life with God in prayer. That's my hope and prayer for you all this morning. So let's end by practicing what we preach and let's pray together.